0: Uh, So yes, we are in chapter 4 now in Matthew, and uh, this sort of introductory four chapters of Matthew, or three and a half, four and a half, I guess it is, three and a half of Matthew is kind of establishing the identity of Jesus. And everything Matthew recounts about Jesus from uh, the eyewitness testimony of the people that were there and from his own eyewitness testimony, he's put down in such a way that his readers will understand this person, this man, Jesus Christ, and that the Messiah has arrived and that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that prophecy is fulfilled. And the first few chapters of Matthew, Jesus is going to get into, and Matthew is an amazing gospel, uh, and I talked a little bit on the first sermon about how it's divided up. There's five sort of teaching sessions combined with sort of works of Jesus in between them. And and Matthew's going to get into that. He's going to get into Jesus. And Jesus's ministry is is towards the world. It's towards us. But these first few chapters are not actually about us. And it's easy for us when we're reading the Bible to quickly make it about us. But the Bible is actually about Jesus, for the most part, mainly. It's about Jesus. And that has a lot of benefit and implication to us, um, but it's not mainly about us. And, uh, so in these chapters especially, Jesus is not teaching, he's not doing miracles, he's not, uh, he's, he's not doing things towards the world or towards us. And so Matthew is talking about him. And so today, as we read this scripture and unpack a little bit, I hope we can see it in sort of three different ways. I want to understand why Matthew is writing the way he is, very briefly. We'll look at that again. I want to see what Matthew's compelled by the Spirit to show us in his writing. The second thing I want to do is, is, is what this wilderness time is, this fasting, these temptations mean for Jesus. Because all these events are very obviously mostly about him. This is something that's happening to Jesus. He's led into the wilderness. He is tempted. These are temptations for him. But I do thirdly want to consider also what we learn about the character of God and the reality of temptation in our own lives. And so there will be encouraging application for us as well. And uh, so we're looking at the text of Matthew 4, 1 to 11, keeping in mind the purposes of Matthew, writing the way he does, the significance of what is taking place for Jesus himself in this moment in history and then applying it to our own lives. So let's just look at Matthew 4, 1 to 11. This is God's word. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So looking at it just first to get some context of why Matthew is writing this and, and how he's writing it. And I touched on this last week that Matthew describes Jesus' life prior to calling the disciples and beginning, and beginning his official ministry. That's what these, ver- these chapters are about. and then we're going to go into his ministry um, in the weeks to come. But Matthew intends for his audience to pick up on the cues he's been giving to them. This is a man who comes from the line of David. Born of a virgin, he escaped into Egypt, he's led out of Egypt, he goes through the waters of baptism, and now he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And Matthew wants us to see some old shadows and shadows of the Old Testament becoming reality in Christ. And the first one, very quickly, is that Jesus is the true Israel. In Exodus 4, God says to Moses, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. And later, Hosea says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And so Jesus is now... The, the reality of the shadow of Israel as the son of God. Jesus goes into the wilderness just as Israel was called into the wilderness, will suffer in the wilderness and be tested in the wilderness. But Jesus is not going to grumble and demand manna and bread from God. He will not worship a golden calf when the word of God is at hand. He will not test God the way that Israel did at Massa, demanding God To respond to them. And so, Israel is now true Israel, or Jesus is now true Israel, he's the new Israel, and he is the victorious Israel, unlike the shadow of Israel in the past. Secondly, Jesus fasts here for 40 days, just as Moses did before God gave Israel the law. And so just as Matthew is showing Jesus as a better King David and a better and new Israel, Matthew is pointing to Jesus as a better prophet Moses, who fasting in the wilderness will now usher in a better law. uh, Moses fasted and ushered in the old covenant or the old law. Jesus now fasts in the wilderness and will usher in and is the inauguration of a new and better law for us. Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is tempted as Adam was tempted, but the new Adam will not fail. As the Apostle Paul explains in more detail in Romans 5, Jesus is a new Adam. He's not like the first. He is, in fact, completely reversing the effects of the first Adam by being the new Adam and passing the temptation. Fourthly, Matthew is not only looking backwards at Adam and Israel and Moses and all of these other shadows of the Old Testament, he's looking forward to the wilderness of Gethsemane where Jesus will be absolutely alone and tested once again as he is left to contend with the trial that is ahead of him. And so this time in the wilderness, I I sort of take this wilderness time of Jesus in the desert, tempted by the devil, and I put it together with Gethsemane at the very beginning of his ministry. And at the very end of his ministry, kind of bookending Jesus' time, serving and, and, and teaching us, he is tempted. And both of these times are kind of hold your breath moments. These are times that Matthew sets up for us where basically if you are following the story and understand what is taking place here that Matthew is showing us, The whole universe just kind of holds its breath at this point to see whether Jesus will be a true Israel, whether he will be a better Moses, whether he will be the new Adam. Because if Jesus fails here, it all comes apart. And it's the same in Gethsemane, when he is alone in the garden, in his spiritual wilderness, and he is tempted, Lord, take this cup from me, and again... Just like here, before his ministry, at the end of his ministry, it's kind of a universe-holding-its-breath moment. How will Jesus respond? Will he be victorious? And Matthew, in both cases, and as we know, Jesus is victorious, but it's just one of those moments. And then finally, Matthew wants us to see clearly here the spiritual reality of Jesus' kingdom. Just as in Jesus' baptism, which looked very different than all the baptisms that came before it, there's clearly a more important spiritual reality that is lying behind what is taking place physically. Jesus is physically in the wilderness. Jesus is physically fasting. Uh, the Satan, the adversary, is present tempting him, and the reality is, is that the kingdom of heaven that is at hand is a spiritual kingdom, and there is a spiritual adversary to this kingdom. There is a spiritual rebellion. There's an insurrection. There is an enemy who's seeking to destroy and disrupt the spiritual reality that Jesus is bringing. And Matthew wants his people to know that what they experience in life and what we experience in life will not make sense to us unless we see behind the physical to the spiritual battle that's going on. And that their king, our king, As a human, fully human, in the desert, suffering as we suffer, is fully capable to fight and win that battle. That's what Matthew wants us to see. Christ has won the battle that we, that Israel has failed at, that Adam has failed at. He's a better law than Moses has ushered in. There's a spiritual reality here that makes sense of what is going on physically. And our King, our Messiah, our Redeemer has won that victory fully capable to win that battle for us. And so that's just some of what, as you're reading, this is what Matthew's writing this way on purpose for us to see this, for us to see what is going on behind the curtain, so to speak, of this physical reality, and that we would understand the significance of what Jesus is accomplishing here in the wilderness and in the desert and in his testing. That we have a, a new and better Adam, a new and better man, We have a Messiah. And now looking more closely at what's transpiring for Jesus himself, I just just want to take some time and unpack the, the temptations a little bit and why this is a temptation for Jesus. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him. And as I was preparing this and kind of reading this text over and over again uh, this last week, the more I was convinced that we have to spend a little bit of time here investing ourselves in understanding what is taking place for Jesus, because it's about him. And and it's easy in the Gospels to to read a a section of text like this and and just kind of skim through it and say, well, Jesus was tempted, and so we're going to be tempted. And Jesus fought the devil with Scripture, and so we should fight the, the devil with Scripture. There, I've got my lesson. I'm moving on it's like well no I, I mean as we just talked about for the last few minutes there's a little bit more going on here than just a example for how we fight the devil i mean that is true that's that's a that's a good reality that jesus is tempted and we will be tempted and he fought with scripture and we we should fight with scripture we'll get to that that that's a good sermon you know that'll preach but but there's more going on here you know in terms of things that are happening in terms of this temptation with jesus so i want to first of all before we get necessarily directly to our applications is walk with jesus in his wilderness and his temptation and so we look at the first temptation the tempter came to him and said if you are the son of god tell these stones to become bread and and the first thing i ask myself is why these are really temptations for jesus i mean i mean in, in that other sermon where we're talking mainly about us, we understand this temptation would be for us, right? Like if, if we're talking about why why we would be tempted in this way, we can understand it. But but why is this a temptation to Jesus specifically? Why did the devil pick these? Why Why would it be tempting for Jesus to do something now in the wilderness? And by tempting, I mean sinful. Why would it be sinful for Jesus to do something here that the devil has asked him to do, but it not be sinful later? Because... Because Jesus can, and in fact he will, turn things into food. He's going to turn water into wine. He's going to multiply one boy's lunch to feed 5,000. And so Jesus can do this. He will do this in the future. Why is this a temptation to Jesus right now? I I think the temptation of Jesus here is fairly similar to our own, but magnified to a degree that we can't fully comprehend because we aren't the Son of God. Satan is tempting Jesus in his state of poverty. You have to understand Jesus has humbled himself from equality with God in perfect unity in heaven without any possibility of harm, in perfect peace with no suffering, in complete omniscience and omnipotence. Jesus has humbled himself from that reality to take on the form of sinful man. He's born of a woman. He has to learn how to eat. He has to learn how to talk. He has growing pains. He smells when he sweats. He has to take baths. He has to learn how to read. He has to learn how to do math. He can only see with his eyes in the visible spectrum, right? He gets tired and he has to sleep for like eight hours out of every 24. He has to learn obedience through suffering. He only does what the Father tells him. And the Father, by the Spirit, has led him into the wilderness to fast. I mean, compared to his existence in heaven, compared even to comfortable human existence, he is in a position of absolute poverty and lack. And so Satan is coming to Jesus in his state of poverty and in his state of lack and suffering and saying, why don't you make some bread? But Jesus knows this trick. Satan tried it with Adam and Eve. God isn't really taking care of you. Sure, you have all these other trees, but God's holding out on you. On this tree over here, you should have that one too. You don't get to eat the really good one. Why don't you take that fruit for yourself? Because God isn't really good. Did he really say that? Jesus, if you really are the son of God, why don't you just turn this stones into bread and eat? But Jesus, who's true Israel, in his wilderness, he answers out of the scripture that God first told Israel. I mean, it's no accident that Jesus quotes Deuteronomy. It says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart don't miss that. In order to test you, in order that you know what's, that, so that you know what's in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestor has had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so Jesus knows that this is the reality, even if the whole... I could turn all these stones into bread. Even if the whole world was full of bread. We can have more bread than we need or even want at all times. And most of us do have more bread than I clearly have more bread than I ever need or want at any given time. And I tend to eat it a lot. Right? But this is, this is the serious reality here is that, is that we all have bread all the time. We are met Needs in every way, and even if we had all of that bread, all of that time, Jesus says we would still not truly live. It's not bread that truly brings us life. And so God tests us in poverty or lack to reveal to us, not to Him, God already knows what's going on in our hearts. He reveals in poverty whether we will lean into him with trust or lean away from him in distrust. And it can be a poverty of health. It can be a poverty of food. It can be a poverty of finances. It can be a poverty of relationships. It can be a poverty like loneliness. It can, there are lots of poverties and wildernesses that God can lead us into so that our heart is tested and it's revealed to us whether in our poverty we are going to lean into God or away from God. And so this is a test for Jesus. In his poverty, where will he lean? What is he going to do? Is he going to try to fulfill himself in his own power or is he going to lean into his father? And we see lots of examples in scripture of people choosing their own path to self-satisfaction and the price they pay for it. Esau comes home from a hunting trip and he's so hungry that he sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge. King David wants Bathsheba no matter what the cost is to him. Judas sold his rabbi and Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. Esau lost his inheritance and blessing. David lost his kingdom. Judas lost his life physically and eternally. And so trying to satisfy our own desires by our own self-gratification, while it seems like we might be gaining... We are actually losing. So Jesus reveals the condition of his heart and he passes the test that Adam could not pass and that Israel could not pass. He essentially says, Sorry, Satan, no dice. I am hungry, but I'm just going to lean further into my Father. I live and I die according to his word, not according to my self-gratification. Then there's the second temptation. It says the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He said, If you are the Son of God throw yourself down for it is written he will not command his angels will he not com- command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone so again with this temptation i start by asking how is this a temptation to jesus because satan is actually not misquoting scripture here he's verbatim pretty much quoting psalm 91 11 to 12 Which says, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Satan says, okay, if if you're going to throw the word of God at me, I I know the word of God too. So why don't you do this? This is a promise that God has made. And in fact, again, just like Jesus being able to make bread and will do it multiple times... Jesus is shortly going to be ministered to by angels. We're going to see this promise fulfilled by God literally five verses after this one. Angels will come and minister to Jesus. So so why is this a temptation then? When when Satan says to Jesus, you are going to be ministered by angels, why don't you throw yourself off the temple so that the angels can come and minister to you just as God promised? I mean, he's going to do it shortly anyway. So go ahead, jump, jump off that high point. Let God's angels catch you. The scripture's accurate. The promise is going to hold true. So, so why is this a temptation now? Well, I think the temptation held out to Jesus is again similar to Adam and Eve. It is to take God's scripture out of context and to apply a promise that glorifies God in a way that would glorify us. If you read Psalm 91 in context, you'll see that Satan is actually applying it backwards. The first 10 verses of Psalm 91 refer to God's care and his promise for he who dwells in the shelter of the most high and to those whom the lord is my refuge and fortress and to the one who has made the lord their dwelling place do you see the direction of their running the running is towards god for shelter and for refuge and for dwelling near to Right, That's who the promise is for, are those who run into God's protection. What the devil wants Jesus to do is to cast himself recklessly out from under the shelter of God. He wants Jesus to use his favored status with God as a means for his own glorification. Just imagine, Jesus, if you throw yourself off the high point of the temple in the middle of Jerusalem. Just imagine if then you are caught by angels and everybody sees this. If you throw yourself out and... Trust in the promise of God that He will catch you. Just imagine the glory. You are the perfect prophetic fulfillment of Psalm 91. Use that power, Jesus. Live recklessly and, and let Dad sort out the problems. Right? But the promise was not for people who are running out recklessly away from God. The promise to test Him. The, the problem was to, for people who are dwelling in and residing and sheltering under God. And this is potentially a very Christian temptation, which is to take license with God's grace once we have his promises. As Christians, we can say, we have all these promises. We we, we, we know the verses, the new covenant even. We are saved by faith and not by works, Ephesians two eight, Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, Romans 5.20. I mean, we know our status as as children of God now. And so this is a very Christian temptation to say, why not take license with this promise that we have from God? Why, why not continue to sin so that grace abounds? Those verses are true, but let's not get them out of context like Satan does deliberately here with Psalm 91. They are not promises for those who are going to live their own way and take license with God's grace and then expect God to protect them from the consequences of their actions. Satan is basically saying, look, God says he'll take care of you, so go ahead and live recklessly outside of his law. You know, do drugs, gamble away your money, sleep with whoever you want. God said nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. No, no, that's not what God said. God God said take refuge in me, shelter in me, dwell with me, and I will protect you. We're not meant to test God by saying, well, God, you promised I'm saved now. I'm going to go take license with that. And this is exactly how Jesus answers. He says, it's also written, you don't put God to the test. And so Jesus passes another temptation as he's going to pass the same temptation again in the garden. He tells the disciples gathered and the Roman soldiers who are present, do you think I couldn't call 12 legions of angels? I can totally do that, right? But that isn't what God has planned for me now. And so there will be plenty of opportunity for God to preserve us through adversity during years of faithful ministry when we're walking with God according to his plans and with his spirit there'll be lots of chances for God to protect us we don't need to invent reckless tests just to confirm for ourselves that God is going to be good that's the essence of doubt that's the essence of faithfulness we should not expect God to protect us from consequences that are apart from his will and Jesus says no Satan I've seen this trick I've seen you use scripture wrong before. I'm not going to fall for that. Now there's the third temptation. It says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And all this I will give you. And he said, if you will bow down and worship me. So now we think again, why is this a temptation to Jesus? Because just like the other situations, we already know that what Satan is offering is actually something that Jesus is going to do or get anyway. Jesus can make bread out of stones and he's going to and it's, not going to be sin. Jesus will be ministered to by angels, and he can call upon the angels, and it won't be sinful, it won't be tempting. But, and here again, we have a temptation that we already know is going to come to pass for Jesus. Jesus is going to inherit all the kingdoms of the world, and more, obviously. I mean, we understand why this would be tempting to us, but why is it tempting to Jesus that Satan would display these kingdoms and say, you can have them? And the connection to Jesus and to us is, again, his humanity. Jesus knows what his life and his ministry is going to be. Jesus is a missionary from heaven. He and the Father and the Holy Spirit had this all planned out before the beginning of time, before the creation of the world. Jesus knows that he has come here for a certain purpose. He is not going to be well-regarded. He is not going to be wealthy. He is, in fact, going to suffer and die on a cross according to the plan that he and the Father and the Spirit have worked out before the foundation of the world. Jesus knows the next few years ahead of him. And so Satan is saying to Jesus here, look, I get that maybe you can inherit all this someday, but that is a painful road for you. I'm the prince of this world right now. God's basically given me a leash here. I can give you all of this with no cross, with no pain, with no suffering. Don't follow God's plan. Follow mine. Don't worship the Father. Worship me. Jesus is tempted at the beginning with poverty and lack, and now Jesus is tempted with prosperity. And this is the reality. If if Satan can't get you to lean away from God in seasons of need, then he will try to get you to worship something other than God in seasons of excess. Satan will say... You have health, and you have youth, and you have money, and you have security, and you have influence. What do you need God for? Look at what the prince of the world is providing for you. Now don't deny, don't tell me this is not a tempting offer, because I see Christians falling for this temptation more than just about any other. The reality is, for many people, these very church seats are empty, when life is going well for them. The church seats are conspicuously vacant when people's families and health and jobs and finances are all going well. Who has time for church and God and Christian community when life has so much to offer? But then suddenly, those seats fill up again when the world isn't all wealth and good times like it seems to promise and the wilderness comes and the suffering comes and all of a sudden we realize that the things that we were worshiping before and what we had our hearts set on before are failing. And God is always faithful and his people are here to always welcome those back. But Satan would love to keep you wealthy and distracted. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 19 says. You can't serve two masters because you will love one and hate the other. You can't serve both God and money, he says in chapter 6. We should praise God that he brings us into wilderness experiences. Let's not miss the fact that the Holy Spirit, and you're going to talk about this more in your life groups, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. It was the Spirit that took him there to be tempted. Right? He brings you into wilderness experiences in your life to get you back to a place where you can see clearly how temporary this world is. Or as Matthew would say, how temporary this kingdom is. This physical kingdom is not what's really important and what is really going on. And so God has to lead us into wilderness experiences so that we can see more clearly how temporary all this is and how eternal your relationship to God is. Jesus could see crystal clearly how temporary and insufficient the offer of Satan was. He could see that this ultimately comes down to what we will put our hope in and what we will trust in and who we will worship. And so Jesus says to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Russell Moore sort of sums up this particular scene perfectly when he says, Jesus refuses to exchange the eternal exaltation of the Father for the temporary flattery of a snake. And that's our temptation, right? To to get the temporary flattery of a snake in exchange for the eternal exaltation of the Father. And that's not just for Jesus. That's for us. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you. By his love, he will exalt over you with loud singing. Do you get that, Christian? God's going to exalt you. Matthew 23 says, Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. First Peter 5, 6 says it again, And God will exalt you in due time if you humble yourselves under his mighty hand. Let's not get distracted by the temporary flattery of a snake in this world and miss out on eternal exaltation by the Father. Let's do a really quick application here. I have 10 points of application (laughs) in conclusion, and I am literally going to cover them in a matter of four minutes. Because all ten of these applications can actually be connected back to this text. I could connect the dots from every one of these applications back to the text that we just read. But I'm not going to connect the dots for you. In your life groups, it will be a great place for you to connect those dots. And you have these ten on your insert. So even though I could fully explain each one of them, I feel it's important for you to have them, and that's why I put them in here at the end here, because I want you to hear these things. There are ten applications, there are ten blind spots that make you vulnerable to temptation. If you care, first one, if you care only for present happiness you will be vulnerable to temptation. If you fear discomfort and difficulty, you will choose the wide and easy road that leads to death. So don't hold tightly to present happiness over everything else. Secondly, if you have no longing for heaven, you will be vulnerable to temptation. If your affections and desire and heart and living is not drawn towards heaven and towards God and his throne, then you will live for this world and what it has to offer and you will be overcome by temptation. It is a longing for heaven that breaks the pull of this world. Thirdly, if you don't trust God's word, you will fail in temptation. Is there anything in the Bible that you don't want to believe or obey? Is there anything in the Bible that you are heartily skeptical over? Do you secretly believe that Scripture can ever lead you away from blessing and joy rather than always into it? Because if there is any part of God's Word that you doubt, and if you doubt His Word, that it is the way to blessing and joy, then you will be looking for some other source and authority That isn't his word, and you will be overcome by temptation. Fourthly, it's dangerous to underestimate the power of temptation. If temptation left Jesus in this place of needing the ministry of angels after it was over, then think what temptation does to us and our need for the ministry of angels and the Holy Spirit. So do not underestimate the power of temptation. Fifthly, it's dangerous to overestimate our own strength. Peter said, I will never deny you, and then denies Jesus three times. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, If you think you stand firm, be careful that you don't fail, fall. When we think we are at our strongest spiritually, we can be at our most vulnerable. I mean, Jesus just was baptized by the Holy Spirit <laughs> and was in this communion with God when He was... Most severely tempted. Sixthly, you are most vulnerable to temptation if you think your temptations are unique. If you think your temptations are unique, you will be tempted to rationalize all your responses to them. Nobody knows what I'm dealing with. Right? Nobody, if they only had my situation, then they would behave exactly the same way I do. You know, I'm justified because my temptation and circumstances are unique. Do not isolate yourself from people who have been tempted exactly as you have been tempted. 1 Corinthians 10.13, there's no temptation that has seized you except what is common to man. Number seven, if you doubt the goodness of God, you will fail in temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 continues, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so you can stand up under it. God is good. God is faithful and active in the midst of your temptation. God is not far from you in temptation. God is close to you in temptation. And he comes to give you victory. So never doubt the goodness of God or you will fall in temptation. Eight, you will be overcome with temptation if you fight with the wrong weapons. 2 Corinthians 103 to 4. We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. And so don't fight temptation with what you heard Oprah or Dr. Phil or Ellen DeGeneres or what you even might have read in Chicken Soup for the Christian Soul. Those are not your weapons of warfare and temptation. Scripture and spiritual disciplines and prayer are how you fight temptation. Ninth, you will be tempted to uh, to fall and overcome if you don't learn to question your own desires. We live in a culture that assumes that if we feel it or desire it, then we should have it and have it now. But James tells us in one fourteen that sin starts with our evil desires and our sinful lusts, and they drag us away and give birth to sin and eventually bring forth death. We must question every desire that comes floating across our heart or our mind or our eyes. Because our desires, if they are not questioned, can lead us into temptation and we will be overcome. Finally, ten, we will be more likely to fall if we are careless about godly boundaries. If we don't respect godly limits in our speech and in our thought and in our dress and in our actions... Temptation will overcome us eventually. God has provided us with boundaries in our comportment, which is just a fancy word that I haven't used for a long time, but I love it. I'm going to use it more now. (laughs) But God has provided us with boundaries in our comportment, our bearing, how we carry ourselves for for our good and for the good of others. If we dress provocatively... If we speak flirtatiously, if we think degradingly, if we act selfishly, then we leave ourselves open to temptation, and we will fall in temptation if we ignore the godly boundaries that God has given us in how we are to bear ourselves as Christians. Those are ten things. Life Groups is going to be awesome this week. That's it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you that we can see what Matthew is unveiling for us, that he is taking the shadow of the Old Testament and making it the reality of the new covenant in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for Jesus. Help us to, in our own limited way, sympathize and empathize with what our Lord and Savior bore up under in the wilderness. This was real temptation for Jesus. This wasn't just, oh, Jesus is Superman. This stuff just bounces off him. No. He was tempted. He was tried. He was tested. But praise be to God that he was victorious. And that from his victory we have salvation. It's not our ability to overcome sin, but his victory over sin that saves us. And Father, thank you for these lessons that are here for us too that you are close to us in our wilderness, you are near to us in our temptation, and that you desire that we bear ourselves in victory so that we can have freedom and life instead of bear the fruit of death, as James talks about. You desire freedom and life for us, Lord, and you have given us these examples and this teaching and the Holy Spirit and your word and prayer and brothers and sisters and the church, all of for our joy and our victory and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.